Good morning, Mosaic. Oh, you guys picked a great day to be at church. Not because I'm here. No, no, no. No. Um, in fact, some of you are probably like, dang it, where's Renault? Um, he's on vacation, and uh, he picked the worst possible week to take vacation because here's why. Tonight, or today, um, we are going to be walking through the perhaps greatest four verses in all of Scripture. And I'm not kidding. Like, this stuff is good. Um, we've been walking through the book of Romans for a little while. If you're just now joining us, welcome. Uh, we're glad you're here. I want to invite you to podcast some of the stuff that you've missed, missed uh, previously because it's so good. But um, we're going to catch up together a little bit this morning. Uh, we're stepping into Romans chapter 8, which really is a major transition point. Um, and it is good, good, good stuff today. So we're going to have a great time together. Romans chapter 8 as a whole and the first four verses that we're going to walk into today um, are really Paul's crescendo. The Apostle Paul, as he's writing this book, he's been building up to this moment for seven chapters. And for the last few months, we've preached through those chapters. And today we find ourselves in Romans 8, 1 through 4. And it is phenomenal. I mean, it is the don't stop believing moment. It's the we are the champions moment. It's the moment where Bree just goes nuts singing. I mean, Bree killed it this morning, didn't she? I wish, I wish we could find some Jesus-loving, talented people to lead us in worship from time to time. Wouldn't that be great? Man, uh, worship was so much fun this morning. Um, but I tell you what, it is that crescendo moment where it's just like, boom, and that is what we walk into today. Let me give you some background before we jump in. Uh, the Apostle Paul has been writing to the Roman church, um, the church in Rome, was comprised of two major types of people. Uh, one type of person was a uh, Christian that converted from Judaism. And uh, whether they were uh, a Jewish proselyte, someone that converted to Judaism and then to Christianity, or they were ethnic Jews, these would have been people who would have embraced uh, much of the culture of Judaism. They would have looked at Christianity as a continuation of Judaism, which truly it is. Um, and they would have felt very, very deep pride uh, in, their, um, in, in their heritage and in um, the fact that they were uh, the people of Israel, the chosen nation of Israel, and that they were the holders of the law. Uh, the law in particular is the first five books of the, uh, the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Um, but the nation of Israel held all of the scripture that had been written up to that point, And they would have felt that that was a very, very uh, major reason uh, to, to feel superior in many ways uh, to other Christians who did not come uh, through the line of Judaism. And there was another type a, a, of person in the church in Rome, and that would have been a Gentile Christian. That would have been somebody who perhaps was uh, Roman by birth or uh, perhaps was, was part of one of the other nations uh, that was under the uh, grip of the Roman Empire that perhaps had moved to Rome for business or um, because they were slaves in Rome or whatever it may have been. And those Gentiles, those non-Jewish Christians uh, converted to Christianity. Now, the reason why they were kind of struggling in terms of uh, superiority and figuring all of that out is that the church in Rome had originally been planted. Uh, it was a, a primarily Jewish church. Most uh, people believe uh, that, that the church 
church in Rome was planted by Peter um, or Peter's influence. It was very, very uh, Jewish in nature. Um, but at, at uh, not very long after the church was planted, uh, the Jews were exiled from the city of Rome by the emperor uh, for seven years. And so that left a leadership void in the church. And the Gentile Christians stepped into that leadership void and continued the church, continued living for Jesus, continued following after Jesus, continued sharing the gospel in their city, and continuing to make an impact with the gospel in the world. And so they had been doing pretty well with that. And in seven years' time, the Jews were allowed to come back uh, into Rome, and so they did. And when that happened, it kind of created a little bit of a leadership tension. Uh, you have these uh, people from the nation of Israel, from uh, the, the religion of Judaism, who had all of the background of Christianity and had led the church in the beginning, are now back in amongst people who have been leading the church for the last seven years. So the Apostle Paul is writing into that environment, and he's trying to help them understand the gospel in the big picture. And the reason why he wanted to do that is it would help both groups of Christians to understand how to work with one another. But in addition to that, Paul in Romans is really writing his gospel doctoral thesis. I mean, this is where Paul really lays it all on the line and demonstrates uh, what he believes and what he sees the gospel being as he is writing under the influence and under the power and the leading and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So that is the book of Romans, and that's where we've been thus far. In chapters 1 through 7, Paul has been demonstrating to two groups of people why they need each other and why neither one is superior to the other. To the, to the Jewish Christians, Paul is saying, look, here's the deal. It might feel to you that the nation of Israel is superior to all the other nations because they are the chosen nation, because they are the people who have had the law, because they have had the written commandments of God, uh, and that they knew what it meant to follow after God for generations. And it might seem that they are the superior group in this discussion. However, let's look at the history of the nation of Israel. The history of the nation of Israel was that they had the law, but they constantly failed at obeying the law. And because of that, they were not superior. In fact, they were even more guilty, right? Because they were not just sinners in general doing generally bad things. They were transgressors as well, meaning that they, like Adam, like our first parent, broke commands that were specifically given to them by God. And so the nation of Israel, they were no better than the Gentiles. Uh, the Jewish Christians were no better than the Gentiles because Israel had the commands of God yet failed to follow them. So they were outed, right? But the Gentiles were also outed as well because the Gentiles were pursuing uh, their own passions of their flesh, uh, doing what uh, all of the different other nations were doing, going after other gods and creating gods for themselves and worshiping the creation rather than the creator. And so the Gentile Christians were also in really bad shape um, uh, in terms of where they came from. The Gentiles were also in really, really rough shape and they needed Jesus, right? And so what Paul tries to help the Gentiles understand through the first seven chapters is, hey, just so you know, you were in really, really bad shape and had Jesus not come, you were in really, really big trouble as well. You were guilty as well of sinning against a righteous and holy God and the wages of sin, the cost of sin is death. 
So Israel, you're lawbreakers and the wages of sin is death. And the Gentiles, you're sinners and the wages of sin is death. And you guys are both in bad shape. And by the way, Gentiles, if it were not for the nation of Israel, there would be no gospel because God chose to bring Jesus in and through the nation of Israel. Now let's go back kind of through the gospel a little bit together uh, so that we kind of see the big picture and what Paul is trying to help them understand. God creates Adam and Eve. He creates them in the Garden of Eden, and the garden is, is beautiful. It's good. In fact, everything that God has created is good. He creates uh, all of the things that he creates and says that they are good. But then when God creates Adam and then Eve, what does God say? He says it is very good, okay? So you have all of creation is good. In particular, humanity is very good. Why is humanity very good? Because God created us in his image to bear his likeness and to rule the rest of creation under his very good authority. So God creates male and female and looks at us and says, very good. Now, after God created Adam and Eve, God's enemy, Satan, comes into the Garden of Eden and he begins to tempt Adam and Eve. Now, for all of you ladies who've been like, well, Eve was the first one who sinned. Let me set you free. You may have heard this before, but it's just fun to talk about, okay? So when, when God gave the original commandment in the Garden of Eden not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, did you know that Eve actually had not yet been created? So God creates Adam, and then there's that time where God's trying to find a suitable helper for Adam, and they're naming the animals, and it's like bat, rat, cat. You know, he gets real tired after a while. First it was like hippopotamus, you know, <laughs> octopus, and then it got really boring. But anyway, so Adam is naming all the animals, and, and, and uh, God's like, you know, are you finding a suitable helper? And, and a porcupine walks by, Adam's like, no, Okay. And so God creates a suitable helper for Adam named Eve. Now God gave the command to Adam not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil before Eve comes along. Now when Satan enters into the garden and begins to tempt Eve in particular, she's tempting Eve, but it was Adam who had heard the commandment of God. Eve is with Adam, right? Because the scripture does tell us that Adam is with her. So they are together while Eve is having a dialogue with Satan and Adam is just passively standing by. So Adam, who was the covenant head of all of creation, he was the first human being. He became the first person to ever break a law that God specifically gave to humanity. So humanity... We are all sinners by our nature because of what Adam has done in that he broke the law of God, the specific commandment of God. Adam was the first transgressor, transgressor and we have all sinned by our nature, but also by our choice, okay? Now, some of us could look back at the Garden of Eden and be like, you know, I don't know. Uh, if I were in Adam and Eve's shoes and I had everything perfect and I'm walking around with my spouse, we're naked, life is good, you know, we're eating fruit. There's nothing to, you know, worry about. Life is wonderful. And then some like nasty snake comes in and starts telling lies. I'm probably going to, you know, get out of Dodge. Like how many of you guys like snakes? Anybody? Anybody? Okay. There's post-service prayer going to be available for you guys. <laughs> just over here. We'll just cast out the demons. It'll be good. All right. 
Just kidding. I actually kind of like snakes too. It's weird. But, but, but for us, we would look back and say, man, if I were in Adam and Eve's shoes, maybe I would have made a different decision. But let's be honest. No, you wouldn't have, okay? Eventually, you and I would have done the exact same thing that Adam and Eve did. And here's the reality. We confirm what Adam did in the Garden of Eden by our choices day in and day out. Do we not? We do. And so what God has done is he's created a humanity where, where they have rebelled against him, they have sinned against him. And in the very beginning pages of scripture, the first three chapters of Genesis, we see the story of humanity unfolding. And when God uh, steps in after the sin is committed, he, he kind of rounds up the three people involved, you know, like a, a, a parent does with the three kids, you know. You got, you got the compliant one, and then you got the, the, the eldest, and then the youngest, who is like the devil incarnate, right? I was the youngest, okay? Uh, so God, God brings these together, and he begins to pronounce judgment upon Adam for his sin, upon Eve for hers, and upon Satan for his. Now, after God pronounces these judgments, in the midst of his judgment pronouncing upon Satan, God promises that he's going to send a redeemer, that he's going to send a savior, that he's going to send a Messiah, that he's going to bring somebody to the table that's going to change the whole game, the whole uh, uh, course of human history. And so from the very beginning of our own sin, God begins to promise a solution, and that solution's name would be Jesus. Now, God doesn't immediately introduce Jesus into the world. God prepares the human race for Jesus' entry into the world by selecting a nation out of all of the people groups of the world. God chooses Abraham uh, and, and, and selects him to be the father of the nation of Israel. And so God chooses this nation to be the nation that would carry the commandments of God, that would live differently than the rest of the world, and eventually that, that the Messiah, the, the sent one, the rescuer, the redeemer, would come through that nation. Now, if you track through the, uh, the history of the nation of Israel, we kind of begin to see uh, uh, some patterns in the nation of Israel. So God would give them a commandment, uh, then they would disobey, they would break the commandment, that would lead them into captivity. And then after captivity, uh, they would repent. And then God would send a redeemer. Now, the first time this happened was Moses, okay? The, the nation of Israel, they found themselves in Egypt. They are captive in Egypt. And God sends Moses. He's, a, he's a, a representation of what Jesus would do for the human race. Moses goes in and he rescues the nation of Israel out of the nation of Egypt. And in the process of doing that, God, uh, God does tons of miracles and, and displays his glory and makes himself known in the midst of all of that. And it's an amazing thing. And after the nation of Israel exits and exoduses the, uh, the nation of Egypt, hence the name of the book, the second book of the Bible, Exodus. After the Exodus, God gathers up the people in the wilderness and they, and they begin to receive the law, first with the Ten Commandments, and then it continues from there. And so Moses is chosen to be the one that is the recipient of the law. And so now not only is the nation of Israel the, the nation that's chosen out from among the other nations, but they also hold the direct commandments of God where the rest of humanity does not hold the direct commandments of God. Now, as we've been tracking through the last seven chapters, and in particularly in chapter seven, we learned that Gentiles in general are guilty of sin because they're doing wrong things that they know in their conscience they should not be doing. That is general sin. But the people of Israel were not just sinners, but also transgressors because they, not just, they did not only commit general sin, but they also committed sin that was particularly 
uh, uh, commanded against by God himself. And so here is where humanity finds themselves. And when Jesus steps into the story, when he steps onto the scene, when Jesus walks in, that is the moment when for the very first time, the nation of Israel is redeemed from their burden of being the ones who carried the law and carried the commandments, yet they were not able to fulfill them. So Romans 8, Paul begins to help us understand the impact of what happens because of what Jesus came to do. And what did Jesus come to do? Jesus came, he lived a perfect and sinless life. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of a Virgin Mary. He was fully human and he was fully God. Jesus was perfectly submitted to the will of the Father and he was led by the Holy Spirit. And what Jesus did is he not only didn't disobey, but Jesus perfectly obeyed. See the, see the difference between that, right? Jesus didn't just not disobey. Jesus actively and purposefully obeyed and did the will of the Father. So Jesus said, when he came, he said, I didn't come to get rid of the law. I didn't come to abolish the law. I actually came to fulfill the law. So Jesus comes, fulfills the law perfectly as a perfect son of God. And he does what no human had ever done. And after living a perfect life and perfectly fulfilling the law, Jesus is then crucified on the cross and bears the sin of humanity upon his shoulders. And God does in Jesus what all of us deserved. God exacts his wrath upon the sin of humanity in Christ. And by, by us believing in Jesus, we are allowed to, this is a, a beautiful thing. We are allowed to receive, instead of God's wrath, we're able to receive his grace because Jesus took on his wrath. And Jesus didn't stay dead after he died on the cross, but he resurrected from the dead so that we could have eternal life with him. This is the gospel. And this is what Paul is trying to help all of us understand more fully and more beautifully. And so what Paul has been leading us up to all these seven chapters is this crescendo, this don't stop believing moment, this we are the champions moment, this Brianna dancing and singing moment, this crescendo gospel moment of Romans 8, 1 through 4. Before we turn there, I want to kind of give us a little bit of a setup of how Romans 8, 1 through 4 are going to play out, and then we'll actually jump into the scripture together. Does that sound like a deal? All right. Romans 8, 1, Paul is going to declare to us this incredible news. It's maybe the best news that we've ever heard. And he's going to declare to us this news in verse 1. And in verses 2 and 3, after declaring us the news, he's going to help us understand how it happened. How did this news become true? How did this get accomplished? What did God do in order to make this, good, this uh, good news true news? How did it get accomplished? And verse four is going to be the big why of the gospel. What is the purpose of God in the good news? Why did God create humanity the way he created humanity? Knowing that we would sin. Why did God send Jesus to come and live a perfect life 
and to die a death that he didn't deserve, but we did, and then to resurrect from the dead. Why did Jesus do that? What is the end result of that? What is the purpose for which God did what God did in the gospel? So verse one is what amazing thing happened. Verse two and three, how this amazing thing happened. And verse four is the big why, why it happened. I think we're ready to jump into the scriptures. You guys ready? I'm telling you, this is good stuff today. So just before we jump in, I just want you to know, if at some point during this, this, this time when we're, when we're in the scripture, if you get excited, it's okay to shout amen. I just want you to know, it, I know handkerchiefs are not a big thing anymore because like they're not super sanitary, but if you've got one, feel free to wave it. I'm just saying, hey, maybe one of the best things you can do, I learned this at a youth conference, you know, you can just kind of shout out, let them use you, you know? You're encouraging me so I know that I'm being used. In, let them use you, you know? Thank you, Scott. I appreciate that. You guys ready to jump in the scripture together? It's going to be good. I promise. I promise. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, page 1045, if you have your Mosaic Bibles. hey oh, it's going to be good stuff today. Y'all don't even know. All right. Yeah, there you go. Let's get charismatic. All right. Like swinging from the chandeliers any moment. That's why we don't have chandeliers. People might swing them. All right, here we go. Romans 8, 1 through 4. I'm going to read the whole thing because it's so good. And then we're going to break it down bit by bit. It's going to be good. All right, here we go. Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Bam! I drop the mic and walk away. You know what I'm saying? Like that is what Paul has done in Romans 8.1. Remember, this is the crescendo, okay? But now after the crescendo, sometimes you're like, you're like at the U2 concert in Tampa. You're like, come on, Bono, bring it back. Come on. Paul's bringing it back in verses two, three, and four. Here we go. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Verse three, for God has done what the law could not do. Weakened by the flesh, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Thank you, Jesus. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. I've got four verses and I've got three pages of notes. Let's get into it. <laughs> Verse one, there is therefore now no condemnation. Wow. What Paul is doing right here is he's bringing back this analogy that he's been using throughout chapters one through seven, about this, this court of law that we find ourselves in. And in this court of law, God is the judge. We are not the defendant. We are the accused. And not only are we accused, but there has been perfect evidence brought against us that we are guilty. And because we are guilty, the verdict is being read. And that verdict is guilty as charged. And not only are, is the verdict read, but the penalty and the punishment is being read. That, that we are guilty of sinning against a righteous and holy God. We are guilty of committing sin, committing trespass against a righteous and holy God. And as a result of that, we deserve death. 
That is the definition of condemnation. You have been condemned. The sentence has been uh, read and you are guilty and there is condemnation. But the good news for us today, if you are in Christ Jesus, we're gonna get to that in a minute, is that there is now therefore no condemnation, no guilt, no shame, no penalty for those who are in Christ Jesus. What good news that is. Now in Christ Jesus, it's a very important phrase. What does it mean to be in Christ Jesus? See, because Paul doesn't say there's now therefore no condemnation and leave it at that. He continues on by giving a a subject to this declarative statement. For who? There is now no condemnation for who? For those who are in Christ Jesus. Now there are two options in this life. We are either in Adam, meaning that we are continuing on in what the covenant head of humanity has done in the Garden of Eden, by our nature and also our choices, we are perpetuating what Adam did in the Garden of Eden. If we are anything other than in Christ, I'm sorry, you can think that you're in uh, nirvana or in, you're, you're in uh, a, a self-help book or Joel Osteen's church thing that he calls that, or wherever you are in. Wherever you are in that is not in Christ, here's what I'm going to tell you. You are in Adam. And it's very important for us to understand this. That according to the scripture, there really are only two options. You are either in Adam or in Christ. In and of yourself, you are in Adam. And for those who are in Adam, those who continue to rebel against God, those who are living according to their own ways, there is condemnation. And you are guilty. And the wages of sin is death. And listen, here's the thing. I don't know what brought all of you guys into this room today. Some of you are here, I trust, are in Christ. But in a room this size, I would be naive to think that all of us are in Christ. And I bet that there are some people in this space right here, right now, you don't have a relationship with Jesus. You're doing life your own way. You haven't put your trust in Jesus for salvation. You haven't put your hope in Christ. You've listened to the lies of the world that tells you you do things your own way and it'll all work out. And I want you and I need you to know because we care about you and we're glad you're here. You've got to know that there's only two options. In Christ, in Adam. You might want a third or a fourth or a sixth or a tenth option, but what I'm, what I'm trying to help you see is what we believe to be the truth according to the scriptures, which we hold to be authoritative. We hold them to be God's word. We believe that they are. We have reason to believe that they are God's word. And the scripture clearly teaches that the only way to experience no condemnation is to be in Christ. And we need to know that. 
if you're here today and you're like, wait, wait, what? (laughs) And you've never given your life to Jesus. You've never trusted in him for salvation. We're glad that you're here. Here's what I wanna encourage you to do. I want you to consider what that means. If you came with someone, have a conversation with them. They're the best person to talk to. At the end of our gatherings today, we'll have an opportunity to be prayed with for whatever may be going on in life. But if you've never trusted Jesus for salvation and after we walk through this today, you're like, mm, I think I need to do that. This is, the, this is a great opportunity. So step into that. I wanna encourage you to do it. So for those who are in Christ, not in Adam, not in Israel, not in the law, people who are in Christ are not condemned. <laughs> that is the crescendo. That is the best news ever. There isn't better news. There isn't. What's your favorite college football team? They win the national championship? Pale in comparison. You're trying to have a baby and you get pregnant? Pales in comparison. You find out you get into your dream college or you just got a promotion? It pales in comparison. You find out you had an uncle you didn't realize. He was super wealthy and you got an inheritance. It'd be sweet, it'd be sweet, but pales in comparison. There is no better news than the gospel. There isn't, you won't find it. Every other religion doesn't even try to give good news like this. Other religions are like, if you try real hard, maybe it'll work out. It won't. Because we have a righteous and holy and perfect creator who is full of justice. And you know, there's something in us It's actually the image of God in us that desires that. See, we don't want murderers to just roam free. We we don't want people who are oppressing others to continue in that. We don't want unrighteousness to go unchecked. We serve a righteous and holy God who holds his people accountable for what we've done. So we're either in Adam or we're in Christ. I want to encourage you to be in Christ by faith in him. Verses two and three, we're getting into the because. <laughs> this, is, this is how this happened. This is, this is why it can be true that there is no condemnation. So this good news, this crescendo moment, here's why. Four, because the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death is this this, uh, expression of the the, uh, effort that we bring to the table when we try to be good, when we try to be right, when we try to be blameless in and of ourselves. That is a law that will lead us to sin and death because we are weak in the flesh. We have a sinful nature and there is no way that we will be able to perfectly obey God in our lives. So the law of sin and death, we have been set free from that. How? Because the spirit of God has set us free. That the law of the spirit of of life. When we follow after God, he leads us to life. And we do so not by our own ability, not by our own works and not by our own power. We do that as Jesus did it by being led by the Holy Spirit. And we're going to get more into that. And it's so good. 
So the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. If you were here for Romans chapter 7, we remember that marriage analogy where the law is what bound us, right? And that we were bound as long as we were alive. And the only way to be set free is to be, as Paul says in, an, in another uh, book, that we are crucified with Christ and that is no longer we who live, but Christ lives in us. So when we die to the flesh, we are alive to the spirit. And so the law of the spirit of life sets us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And guys, this is where it starts to get super, super good. Really good. If y'all want to like say, let them use you or something, you know, that, this is where it's going to be. Okay. So check this. Well, not out of time. It has to be in the right time. You get there. All right. You'll get it. It's okay, Scott. Four, because verse three, God has done. <laughs> God did it, not me. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, weakened by our sinful nature, could not do. We didn't have what it took to fulfill the law perfectly, but Jesus did because he did not get weakened by a sinful nature. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of a Virgin Mary. He lived a perfect life, fully God, fully man, lived a perfect life and was not weakened, was able to perfectly obey God and God did what the law could not do because it was weakened by the sinful flesh, because it was weakened by sin in people. God did it, how? By sending his own son. Yeah, come on now. Hey, God didn't send like, you know, an angel. Hey, uh, over there, you, you're not doing anything. Go to the earth and pay for the sins of humanity. God sent his son. And here's the thing, it's plan A. Revelation teaches us that, that Jesus was the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the earth. Before God said, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is very good, created Adam and Eve, Jesus was already the plan because God knew that we were gonna sin, God knew what we were gonna do and it wasn't just his foreknowledge, it was his divine plan being laid out for us so that we would experience the redemptive God who created everything we know. Yeah, I'm gonna let him use me, all right? So here's what happens. Jesus comes in the likeness of sinful flesh. He was fully human as Adam was, yet he did not sin. Jesus came to accomplish what Adam failed to do. He became the new covenant head of humanity, of everyone who would ever put their trust in Jesus. He is our covenant head. The Bible says that Christ is the head of the church. In Colossians, it says that in him, everything is held together. Everything was created by him and for him. And he is the head of the body, the church. And so we get to live in him. And Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Now this is where it gets really crazy. For sin. In the Greek, this is the word hamartias. I'm no scholar. I looked it up on the internet, but I got some good help, okay? This Greek word hamartias can be translated to miss the mark. And a lot of times it's easy for us to think about sin and think like, I was trying. I just didn't do it right. As if God gives us a bow and arrow and says, I want you to hit that target over there. And we pull it back kind of aim a little bit. Maybe we had too much coffee, so we're shaky. That's the story of my life. We let it fly, and it doesn't hit the bullseye, but it, it kind of hits near the target. 
I mean, after all, we're not professional archers, so we did a pretty good job. But the real way to look at this phrase, missing the mark, is to recognize that when God gave us the bow and arrow, we pulled it back and we took aim. Instead of letting it shoot toward the target, we turned. And we released the arrow at Jesus. That's what sin is. And Jesus came for sin. And God's plan was to draw the sin of humanity together in one place at one time onto one person who was fully God and big enough to carry the weight of it all. And every last sin that you ever would commit, ever will commit, and even ever could commit. Sin itself was drawn into one place on Jesus on the cross. This is what theologians call substitutionary atonement. Jesus took our place on the cross. We deserve the wrath that God had towards sin, but Jesus absorbed the wrath of God for our sin. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Oh man, it's like hanky time, you know what I'm saying? And then it gets even better. So what did God do with this sin on the cross? Remember in verse one, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Do you know why that's true? Because of the very next phrase. Because on the cross, in Jesus, God condemned sin itself on the cross. That's why you're not condemned. And that's why I'm not condemned. I committed sins. You committed sins. We've all committed sins. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God condemned sin on the cross of Jesus Christ. He took care of it forever. God said, sin, you're condemned. God poured his wrath out on sin so that you and I would not have to experience the wrath of God. Wow. In order that, <laughs> verse four, this is a statement of the purpose of God. This is why God did it all this way. This is why God chose to lay it out this way. In order that, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who us? Those of us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. God's plan all along was that you and I, his good creation who had fallen because of sin, would be forgiven and then given the Holy Spirit. This is temple theology. In the Old Testament, God had a temple, a place where he resided, and that's where his presence was. 
after Jesus came and sent the Holy Spirit, when we believe and trust and put our hope in him for salvation, God forgives us for our sin, clears out this temple, this body that had been previously used for sin. And God says, I'm going to put myself in you. God's desire has always been to dwell with us. Emmanuel, God with us. And God gives us his Holy Spirit when we become Christians, when we, when we put our trust and our faith in him for salvation. God does not leave us alone to live his way. God gives us himself. And he says, now go walk according to me, not according to Adam, not according to you, but walk according to my Holy Spirit. So what does this all mean, you guys? This is some of the best verses in all of scripture. What does it all mean? It means that we're not under the condemnation of the law because the sin committed and the law that was broken has been paid for and even obliterated by Christ on the cross. Sin, sin has been condemned. God condemned sin in the flesh on the cross of Christ. Sin has been condemned, not us. What the law did was that it revealed sin. And what God did in Christ is he condemned sin so that you and I might become the righteousness of God and live according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. I don't know what Renault's doing right now, but it's not this fun. Let's pray. <laughs> Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you for the book of Romans. Thank you for the apostle Paul. Thank you for the truth that we see. Thank you for this gospel crescendo that we got to experience this morning. God, I pray that the truth of this would absolutely impact every area of our lives. God, I pray that the reality that sin has been condemned and obliterated in the cross of Christ and that we have been forgiven and made righteous, not because of anything we deserve, but because of Jesus, what you deserved. God, I thank you that we are now set free to live for you. God, I pray for anyone here that's struggling with sin, that they would recognize that their sin has been condemned on the cross and that we have been crucified with Christ and that it is no longer we who live, but that Christ lives in us. God, let us walk by the spirit and not by the flesh. Thank you for the book of Romans. Thank you for what you've taught us this morning. You are good and we put our hope in you and you alone. God, I pray for anyone here who has never put their trust in you, that they would do that today. God, your word says that today is the day of salvation. And God, I pray that people would walk into a relationship with you today so that they would no longer be under condemnation that Adam and that we rightly deserve, but that they would be in Christ. And God, for those of us here who are already in Christ, remind us, God, that there is therefore now no condemnation. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for the gospel. It's just so good. Amen.